So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. You can follow us on Instagram at conspiritualitypod. In addition to these Thursday episodes, we also release a shorter episode on most Saturdays. Uh, My brief, coming out in a couple days, features an interview with Eric Garcia about the impact of RFK Jr.'s anti-vax activism on people with autism. If you'd like to support our work, we offer Monday premium bonus episodes on both Patreon and Apple subscriptions. Patreon supporters also get all of our content ad-free and can even choose to up-level for access to behind-the-scenes videos and live streams. My last bonus was called the Dalai Lama Spectacle, and it consists of about a month's work reviewing a cursed internet disaster from multiple angles. I think it came together pretty well, given the response on Patreon, with a lead comment being... This was such a great example of calmly and rationally looking at a hot topic from many different angles with consideration and sensitivity. (laughs) 
Conspirituality 155, We Want Them Infected, with Jonathan Howard, MD. What really happened during the pandemic? Conspiracists have this year decided to go ahead and take a victory lap. You see, they were right all along. The vaccines failed. And besides, they were super dangerous. COVID obviously came out of a lab. Masks were useless. And the lockdowns were completely unnecessary forms of totalitarian oppression. The authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, who were censored unfairly on social media, were right all along. Not so fast. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Howard, who not only did grueling service at Bellevue Hospital in New York City as the first wave raged and the bodies were having to be stacked in meat trucks outside, but he also put in the time to create a comprehensive document of how contrarian doctors shaped cultural perceptions and beliefs during the pandemic. He takes the title of his book, We Want Them Infected, from a quote found in a series of emails from July of 2020. Trump appointed science advisor to the HHS, Paul Alexander, urged officials there and at the FDA and at the CDC to pursue a herd immunity strategy for COVID-19. There is no other way, he wrote, We need to establish herd, and it only comes about when we allow non-high-risk groups to expose themselves to the virus, period. Infants, kids, teens, young people, middle-aged with no conditions, etc., have zero to little risk. So we use them to develop herd. We want them infected. So, Julian, we just recorded a couple of bonus episodes that we'll drop over the next few weeks in which we grappled with what we're now calling the institutional stage of conspirituality, where we have Bobby Kennedy now beating out Mother Marianne Williamson in the Democratic primary polls, running on the strength of his spiritualized anti-vax networking while also hiring Charles Eisenstein as his director of messaging. So it is becoming clear that conspirituality is not a blip or an aberration, but it's really baked itself into the discourse and has been normalized in the landscape. Now, one of the most haunting lines from Dr. Howard, he said it several times in your interview, was that Kelly Brogan won the pandemic. Um, And he's saying that as someone who knew her personally long before like the anti-vax world went mainstream, long before she totally disappeared up her own asshole. Um, But but it made me think, like, how did she win? And I mean, some of our work is about tracking that network and its and its techniques, the algorithmic charisma, the disaster spirituality, the cult dynamics. There's all of these things that we're very familiar with. But then you're talking to him and we find out something that I think we suspected, but I certainly didn't have real clarity on. I don't know if you did. I think you were following a lot of these doctors more than I was. Um, And that is that the door to all of the Brogan Brigade was kind of held open by legitimate medical pundits, many of them from elite institutions 
who all took minimizing positions towards COVID from the outset, and then they doubled down when they turned out to be wrong. So for instance, he talks about how John Ioannidis from Stanford wildly underestimated the death rate, and then he went and accused opponents of conspiring against him when the deaths didn't peak out. At, at What was it? He thought it was going to be like 40,000 nationwide? Yeah, and then that's the only explanation for why he was wrong, is that uh, they're fudging the data to uh, conspire against him. Yeah, right. All right. So I'm listening to you guys talk. I'm wondering, also, I hear you ask the question several times, like, what happened to these guys? Like, why did Jay Bhattacharya lose his mind? Like, how do Monica Gandhi and Z-Dog wind up laughing at people for being scared of COVID and continuing to wear masks and wondering if they should continue social distancing? Like, where did their standard of care go? Like, what happened? And I heard, and listeners, you're going to hear, they're, they're going to reach into many possible like explanatory streams. They're all like super crucial audience capture. Um, Julian, you were talking about the flattery of being interviewed by Fox, yeah. you know, that, that the spotlights will come into your house and your study yeah. and suddenly like you're on stage. Yeah. Your, your, your contrarian opinion is very important. It's much more important than anything else that you've ever done because you're on TV now. <laughs> right. Then there's political payoffs. Uh, if we think of, you know, uh, Joseph Lopato, who becomes Florida Surgeon General uh, by being a crank, uh, who is like totally willing to openly fake evidence to pretend that vaccines are deadly. And and all of these answers appeal to like basic human corruptions. And I think they're all totally on point. But here's what I want to suggest. And maybe this is its own kind of uh, episode. Maybe it's its own extra interview with, with Beatrice Adler-Bolton. I think that Brogan probably wouldn't have won except in a neoliberal landscape that already individualizes healthcare at the highest level, where Paul Alexander, as you quoted, basically does the medical version of exposure therapy, or like, I'm going to teach this toddler to swim by chucking them into the deep end and hoping for the best. Some will drown. Some will drown. But the others will be really good swimmers. Yes. I think we just have to like be honest that Aside from the wild claims, aside from 5G, terrain theory, whatever, what Brogan ultimately wanted was that the society in general um, was also willing to tolerate, which is a choose-your-own-adventure pandemic in which the rich and the able-bodied were going to be able to be better off and that that would confirm our meritocracy, right? And, and in the end, that's exactly what she got. While she was able to bitch about the elites in medicine who were oppressing her, when mm. the truth was that that COVID mitigations were only spottily applied. Every state had their own sort of system, totally different between red states and blue states. And there was never really much of an intention to do a lot more than facilitate back-to-work schemes when it really comes down to it. And so... Like we wrote this whole chapter about how the yoga and wellness worlds were sitting ducks for fascist creep during the pandemic because of 50 years of explicit depoliticization. And the macrocosm of this argument, I, I believe, is that a healthcare system, which is pilled on neoliberal responsibilism, like right up to the very top, is just not going to be equipped to resist 
the medical chaos of Brogan, Sergi, and Del Bigtree. So, like on the surface, I know you're like you 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 are very um, you're adamant about making distinctions between these people, uh, Julian. I often <laughs> lump really big pieces of the pie together. So I'll say that. Yes, there are differences. Like on the surface, the Brogan Brigade is saying batshit things like terrain theory is true, COVID is caused by whatever, 5G, and vaccines shed. And by the way, that's why Rashid Batar just carked it. Oh. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's important to to actually underline, right? Is that is that uh, one of the disinformation dozen, Dr. Rashid Batar, who's meaning that he was a, a huge uh, spreader of anti-vax messaging during COVID, just died. He died, I think, at 57? Yeah, 57. And so now Sayer G, right? Posted saying what exactly? He, uh, Sayer G said that he that he t- that Butar told him that he believed that he was ill with COVID type symptoms because of vaccine shedding. But then there's another story circulating mm-hmm. um, on Telegram and in the disinformation sphere that um, he told other people that he believed that he had been poisoned after an appearance on CNN. So, you know, of course, there's the stories are going to just write themselves. Yeah. So uh, that's that world. And Alexander and Ioannidis aren't saying those things. They're not going that far. Bhattacharya is not going to talk about vaccine shedding. But they also don't really have a solid framework or perhaps the values or the willpower for refuting what the batshit does in practical terms, which is to foster a health paradigm in which individuals just have to be responsible for themselves and in which we should just all roll the dice and partake of the health care that we can afford as Beatrice Adler Bolton of Death Panel puts it. Yeah, I think there is, as as you were pointing out, I, I'm interested in the relationships between all of these different groups um, and also in the distinctions between them. I think you do have a, a spectrum. And when I hear um, Jonathan Howard say Kelly Brogan won, what I hear him saying is that the contrarian voices that came from an obviously like easy to dismiss um, already up to their armpits in pseudoscience, you know, set of influencers who were who were very conspiratorial, who may have been saying things like it's caused by 5G or, you know, the vaccines are going to contain microchips or that this is all part of some uh, cabal that is trying to control us, that those messages got mainstreamed to such an extent that the it became almost predictable that the waters we were swimming in in terms of the media sphere um, and especially the alternative media sphere in during the pandemic um, could have now people like these uh, Ivy League educated, um, very, very well established scientists saying things that if not completely the same as the Kelly Brogans and the Christian Northrop's of the world were definitely adjacent to that. And we're definitely perpetuating now what you're talking about is the overlap, which is this libertarian um, and inhumane message that is essentially saying every person for themselves 
um, choose your own adventure. We're not going to live in fear. And, you know, your, how seriously you're taking quarantine measures and getting vaccinated maybe is a function of, you know, different variables that have to do with your age and your, your income and how at risk you perceive yourself to be and how healthy you are and how fat you are. And all, all of those, you know, sorts of, um, that hierarchy, essentially. Yeah, the calculus of cruelty, right? Like, how, how can we add up all of the things that we can offload onto the individual in terms of their um, sins, shortcomings, and responsibilities so that we can absolve ourselves and move on, really? Yeah, and if the, if the conspiritualists that we've covered in such depth are sort of unconscious because of their privileged depoliticization and maybe lack of sort of intellectual background, if they're unconscious of how they're really speaking out of a, a libertarian or a neoliberal kind of political philosophy, um, the mainstream Ivy League educated doctors who were, who ended up saying somewhat similar things or, or promoting a similar kind of approach to how we should handle the pandemic as it, as it wore on, they actually are very conscious uh, about where they're coming from because most of them are actually networked in terms of these libertarian think tanks that had a, a, a very strong uh, impetus towards let's get the the uh, uh, pandemic over as soon as possible so we can get back to work so that we can get the economy up and running. And there's a valuing of that actually over any sense of the, the, the well-being and the health of the public. Dr. Jonathan Howard, welcome to Conspirituality. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I wanted to have you on today because you have a new book and it's titled, We Want Them Infected, How the Failed Quest for Herd Immunity Led Doctors to Embrace the Anti-Vaccine Movement and Blinded Americans to the Threat of COVID. Now, you've really followed the story from inside the medical establishment, while we on this podcast have paid more attention to wellness influencers and pseudoscience peddlers. Part of why I find this book and what we're going to talk about today so compelling and important is because this year, what I'm seeing is rampant attempts to rewrite history on the part of the contrarians and conspiracists who have a lot of influence, especially on social media. This, of course, is incredibly dishonest and self-serving, but it's also really dangerous in terms of future pandemics. And, and I also see it as a really grotesque dishonoring of the dead. I've experienced this as a chorus since January within the sort of heterodox new media landscape, uh, also on right-wing shows and on the podcasts and YouTube channels that platform conspiracy theorists. And the chorus amounts to the following set of talking points. COVID wasn't actually a big deal for healthy people. Masks actually didn't work. The tests were useless. The vaccines failed and were much more dangerous than we were told. Public health officials knew all of this but lied to us due to ulterior motives and corrupting incentives. The lockdowns were an overreaction and caused unwarranted damage to the economy and to children. The lab leak actually looks like the most likely explanation now, and they used to call that a conspiracy theory. Jay Bhattacharya and his Great Barrington Declaration co-authors were right. It's turned out that the evidence supports their stance. And if we'd only followed a herd immunity strategy like Sweden did, 
the pandemic would have been over in three months or something. Lastly, the Twitter files show that government and the mainstream media were colluding with big tech to censor contrarian voices and perpetuate a mainstream narrative, a COVID heter- uh, orthodoxy that claimed to follow the science, but was in fact guided by the lies and mistakes of people like Anthony Fauci, who should be jailed for his crimes. I hear some combination of these claims tossed around all the time, quite glibly, as if they are now established truths. And, and this is not just by conspiracy nuts. So my sense, and thank you for sitting through that long uh, intro, my sense is that your extraordinary and very comprehensive book can help us sketch out an honest account of what really happened and how public perceptions got so skewed. So all of that as a setup, let's start with who you are, what your professional experience was prior to and during the initial stages of the pandemic. Yeah, so I I have worked at uh, NYU in Bellevue Hospital here in New York City for about the past 20 years. And I really think I have two kind of qualifications that allowed me to write this book. And the first of these is that I worked throughout Bellevue Hospital, throughout the pandemic here at Bellevue Hospital. And, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be right about what I have to say. It didn't allow me to predict the future of the pandemic better than anyone else. But I saw it with my own eyes. I I saw what this virus could do. I saw what it could do uh, occasionally to young, healthy people. And I saw how things could spin out of control. My experience wasn't unique. You know, tens of thousands of healthcare workers here in New York City saw the same thing, and we heard the same thing. Uh, the sirens wailing throughout the city at all times of night, the giant refrigerated trucks behind our hospitals that were needed to store the dead bodies. And then inside the hospital, just the the overhead airway pager, you know, airway team to this room, airway team to this room. This is when, they, when a patient is crashing. And normally you hear that, you know, maybe once a day in the, in the hospital, maybe zero times. Uh, it was every 10 minutes uh, during during the peak of COVID. Um, so I think that's qualification number one. And the second qualification is I've had a, a decades-long uh, interest in the anti-vaccine movement when one of the doctors who I've trained with and someone who you guys have uh, discussed extensively, uh, Dr. Kelly Brogan, morphed into one of the country's um, uh, most famous anti-vaccine doctors. And I knew her pretty well. You're not going to get any gossip from me. We had a good relationship. You know, we were friendly. She's nice. I'm nice. Um, and it wasn't until after she graduated and really didn't have to actually treat any real patients in front of her anymore, or she could pick and choose which patients uh, she treated, that she really began her descent into pseudoscience. And she began posting all of this anti-vaccine content. And she's not stupid. She went to MIT. She went to Cornell. She trained with me here at NYU. uh, And I became fascinated as to how smart people could believe crazy things like this. And a lot of anti-vaccine arguments, the very first time that you encounter them, they're hard to refute. They, they are very sort of superficially plausible. You may not be aware that the person you're interacting with is just not telling the truth, just spreading fake numbers. And I devoted the past decade to learning everything I could about the anti-vaccine movement and how to refute their myths. And in 2018, I wrote a book chapter about this with law professor Dory Reese in a book called Pseudoscience. And so I was really shocked during the pandemic when pro-virus ideas that obvious quacks like Kelly Brogan were spewing about measles and HPV 
became kind of mainstream and uh, you started hearing them from the mouths of you know prominent doctors from Stanford, Harvard, UCSF, Johns Hopkins, really top medical schools. And it was a really shocking thing to see. This is really the thing that I think is so unique about your book. You know, we, we've talked about Kelly Brogan and her erstwhile husband, Sayer G, from the very start of the podcast because there were such big voices within the kind of wellness, alternative medicine, holistic space. Uh, basically doing COVID denialism and, and anti-vax rhetoric and and the kind of grift that we came to recognize as, as somewhat ubiquitous where, you know, the mainstream narrative is false, but I've got something to sell you that uh, that is going to be the cure for what ails you or is going to give you the, the one up where you don't have to be afraid. And instead you can, you know, live, live your life in this kind of empowered, awakened way. But you've really covered the doctor's and, and the doctors who, as you were just saying, you wouldn't have expected to go down this road. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I was going to ask you about Kelly Brogan in this regard, but, you know, you just, you just talked about, uh, you just gave the description of several types of doctors with several um, very high pedigree credentials who went down this road. Do you have, and this is asking you to speculate, do you have any explanation or hunch about how one makes that journey from going to an Ivy league school and from working in, in, you know, top level hospitals to being someone who is spreading COVID disinformation. So uh, this is a little bit of speculation just because, um, you know, I have Kelly Brogan is the only doctor in this book uh, who, who I've met. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me just say, you know, I think there's are, are, are three big differences between the doctors who I write about and uh, someone like Kelly Brogan. So the first is they mix good advice with bad advice. So they will recognize COVID is real, recognize viruses cause disease. uh, And they will say that we should definitely have protected nursing homes and older and vulnerable people. We should, you know, use every means at our disposal to protect vulnerable people. You know, Kelly Brogan would never say that. Um, Then they would mix that with bad advice, such as for anyone under the age of 65, uh, driving to work back and forth is more dangerous. So, So that's one way that they're very different. Another way that they're very different is they claim, if you were to ask their their philosophy of medicine and science, it would be no different than mine. Data, logic, reason, science, evidence. They do not talk about higher ways of knowing and intuitive medicine, this sort of thing, you know, like Dr. Brogan. And I think the final thing is that unlike her, they were extremely influential during the pandemic. You know, not that, not that people like Dr. Brogan and Christian Northrup and all the people you cover, you know, didn't didn't do a lot of damage, but um, they weren't ubiquitous on Fox News, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic. They didn't have private audiences with President Trump and Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin, whereas all of the doctors that I talk about um, were very influential and famous and very big on social media. Um, and one thing that they do share in common for the most part is that they didn't treat COVID patients. So I think that was kind of, with a few exceptions, but I think that was kind of the first step uh, towards their pathway is that when we were surrounded by mass deaths here in New York City, and it wasn't just New York City, it was you know many other places, eventually came to be almost everywhere. You know, they were sort of in their offices at, at Stanford uh, and, and Harvard. And I think a lot of them, 
underestimated the virus at the very beginning. They, they just thought it wasn't going to be that dangerous. And a lot of good faith people, you know, made that air. Dr. Paul Offit said it was going to, he's a vaccine expert who, who thought it would kill one-tenth of the flu. Um, and within a month, he was obviously wrong and he admitted it, but these guys were incapable of admitting air. And so I think rather than just take the easy way out, at least for me, and sort of say, oops, I goofed, they kind of kept digging and digging. And rather than admitting they underestimated the virus, spreading started spreading what became QAnon memes that you guys have discussed many times, that people were dying with COVID, not of COVID, that death certificates couldn't be trusted, that it was just 90-year-olds with metastatic cancer who were doomed to die on a Saturday when COVID knocked them off on a Friday. Uh And even that doctors were killing patients through premature intubations. Mm. So it was a real sort of, from Stanford University to QAnon pipeline, which really caught me off guard. And, you know, all of the doctors that I write about, some of them were world famous. A lot of them still are. Paragons of evidence-based medicine, a Nobel Prize winner, just really famous people who really should have known better, I think. Yeah. So we have the, we have the more alternative wellness, holistic influencers who, some of whom may have had medical credentials Uh, which would mean that they perhaps should know better, but they would go down the road of very fringe beliefs like uh, uh, germ theory is not real, right? It's it's terrain theory all the way. And this notion that viruses cause illnesses has just always been wrong. And you're talking about a different category of people who initially, I imagine, sounded quite reasonable. Like they were saying, yes, We agree with all of these talking points, but in this particular area, we think that the mainstream uh, orthodoxy, the scientific consensus may be getting it wrong for the following reasons. And I can see how that that's very compelling to a lot of people to go, well, look, this, this person seems legitimate and they are, they're not saying that germ theory doesn't exist. They are saying that they're not saying that COVID is caused by 5G, you know, like some of the people we've covered, but they are they are presenting some alternative interpretations of what the current situation means and how we should approach it. And then I, what, part of what I hear you saying is that in many cases, they were not actually treating COVID themselves. They were not on the front lines the way you were. They, although front lines became a contested term as this whole thing. Came. Yes. And it's, it, it seems to me that it's, it, I I can imagine, as you said, they're sitting in their offices and they start to become sought after contrarian experts who are now appearing on TV. And even if they had, if they, if they, if they had been very successful in the field of medical science, they had never before had tasted what it was like to be on Fox news multiple times, to be speaking at big conferences, to have hundreds, perhaps thousands of people showing up and saying, yes, you're, you're the one who's really telling the truth and we trust you and and we celebrate you and you're the one who can lead us out of this mess. And then I hear you describing a pipeline whereby that sort of audience capture phenomenon becomes more and more intoxicating and they're doubling down. And as they double down, they start going deeper and deeper into um, levels of unreasonable beliefs that they're endorsing that you never could have predicted at the start. One of the things I really found frustrating in 2020 
uh, from 2020 uh, onwards was that these contrarian and conspiracist voices who rose to prominence, they'd make very specific falsifiable predictions about what was going to happen. And, and those would fail. And these are people with the background in science, right? And they never corrected themselves. They never said, well, it turns out the predictions I made uh, didn't, didn't come to pass. They also seem to never be held to account by the people who were platforming and celebrating them and, and, and bringing them in as the authority figure they were relying on. It all just kept moving on to whatever the latest juicy misinformation happened to be. It sounds like you saw that happening too. Like what, what was going through your mind as, as you observed that phenomenon? Well, it, it took me a while to realize this because these were voices who I trusted and, and I thought were smart and, and they are smart, which is the, the point of the book, and, and, but really that they knew what they were talking about. So when, when smart, highly credentialed professors from Stanford and Oxford were sort of saying that they think the pandemic is kind of on its way out in, in May, June 2020, uh, when it was actually just beginning, I kind of believed them. I thought they must know something that I don't. But there was this kind of disconnect between what I had just witnessed with my own eyes and what these smart, brilliant, respected voices were, were telling me. I thought I must be missing something. And it kind of took me a while to realize that the, that the, the, the emperor has no clothes. And, you know, let me just give you an example of what you said absolutely correct about a, a, a falsifiable prediction that, that aged poorly. Um, on April 9th, 2020, Dr. John Ioannidis, probably the most famous scientist in America, maybe outside of Fauci himself. Uh, he is a, an epidemiologist and statistician uh, at Stanford University and someone who uh, has a reputation for really telling people, doctors and scientists, when they're doing bad research and how they can make it better. Anyways, on April 9th, 2020, he said, if I were to make an informed estimate based on the limiting data we have, I would say that COVID-19 will result in fewer than 40,000 deaths this season in the USA. Now, by April 9th, about 20,000 people had already died and about 2,000 people were dying per day. So essentially, he was predicting the end of the pandemic for that season. And indeed, within a week, his prediction of 40,000 deaths had been broken. And rather than saying, oops, I underestimated the virus, this is when he started spreading the conspiracies that people were dying with COVID, not of COVID, that you couldn't trust, uh, test the result, trust the uh, death certificates. For example, um, after his, uh, the week after his prediction of 40,000 deaths was obliterated, he went on the, uh, television show of Fox News firebrand Mark Levin and said that the infection fatality rate, the, the number of people who get COVID who will die of it, was about one in a thousand. And by that point, 10,000 New Yorkers had already died. So if 10,000 New Yorkers had already died and one in a thousand people die of it, that would imply there have been 10 million infections here in New York City, when only 8.3 million people live here. So it's just these mathematically impossible calculations that you could only get around by saying not that many people really died or doctors killed them through premature intubations. And these are still widespread myths and, and, and beliefs um, that, that, that continue to affect our pandemic response today. Yeah, and this is really classic conspiracy theorist logic, right? If, if I, if, if the evidence turns out not to support the claim I'm making, well, that's just more evidence of the conspiracy. Yeah, no, no, exactly right. Exactly right. Mm. 
So you just mentioned uh, John Ioannidis. Am I saying his name correctly? I believe so. Ioannidis, Ioannidis, something along that. Yeah. So he he plays a very important role in the story. Is there more that you want to share with us about him? Yeah. So as I said, I mean, he is this top-notch, uh, you know, scientist. If you look at his Wikipedia page and all the awards he's won, you know, he's won more awards last year than I'll ever win in my life. And, you know, he seems like a very decent fellow. He speaks in a very calm, uh, reflective way. And, you know, again, this is what differentiates him from, from uh, Kelly Brogan. He won't say anything that's, that's obviously crazy. And I, I think that he really helped get our pandemic response off on the wrong foot uh, in the mainstream media and in scientific journals early on in the pandemic. Uh, he was constantly downplaying the threat. Again, he would recognize, he would say, we have to protect nursing homes, we have to protect grandma, but everyone else, it, it, it's really nothing to worry about. And at the very beginning, in March 2020, uh, he thought that the virus was just not going to spread that widely. Okay, fine. Uh, a month later, he did a very controversial antibody study in Santa Clara, California, uh, which claimed that the virus is already widespread. And therefore, this was also nothing to worry about because, you know, it, it, most people don't even know that they've gotten it. So it, this is one thing that's been fascinating to witness this pandemic. Whatever the facts on the ground show, uh, people use that to support their arguments. So when he thought it wasn't going to spread widely, don't worry about it. When he thought it was already widely spread don't worry about it. And, and this re sort of repeated itself throughout the pandemic. Um, another area where this happened, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, is pediatric vaccinations. You know, there were doctors who two years ago in 2021 thought kids didn't need vaccines because the pandemic was going away. And then a couple years later, today, they say kids don't need vaccines because they've all got it already. So it, it, the belief comes first. COVID isn't that bad. Kids don't need vaccines. And whatever facts on the ground you can point to support that belief. It's really fascinating hearing you lay it out like that, because those kinds of ad hoc rationalizations, they're the false version of how science actually unfolds. And it seems to me that one of the one of the really big failures during the pandemic was uh, of science communication and that when the data unfolded and changed and when public health positions uh, needed to be revised. And when Fauci contradicted something he had said earlier, a lot of the public interpreted that as they're lying. This is suspicious. You know, this, the, the conspiratorial kind of um, interpretation starts to creep in because there isn't an adequate understanding that this is a new situation. We're gathering the data as we go. We're giving you the best possible recommendations we can. And those are going to be subject to change. And so the the sort of shadow false version of this is exactly what you're describing, where someone like Ioannidis is going to going to proceed from a hypothesis that he's already invested in being true, and he's just going to keep modifying the way he explains why it's true. And, and yeah, I'm just I'm just struck by that irony in a way. You know, is that is that he he's also evolving his position, but he's not actually doing it from the place of scientific inquiry that stays true to the principles of the method. And so therefore, he, he the, the 
the true scientists are actually in a more vulnerable position. Well, true scientists are always in a more vulnerable position because, uh, you know, they have to say, I don't know quite a bit. And that's a very difficult thing for, for people to say. I mean, Dr. Ioannidis would sort of say that at the beginning of the pandemic, he was saying, I don't really know anything. You know, we just need better data. But, but that's not really true. Uh, you know, early in March 2020, he said that if only... Uh, we had devoted as many resources to stopping COVID as to stopping the flu. We might save tens of thousands of lives. And, uh, you know, he said that COVID was going to be entirely benign for people under the age of 65. So, I, you know, I, they, they, they just got a lot wrong and they couldn't adjust as the facts on the grounds changed. One thing that's extraordinary about this book is that you, you really bring receipts uh, you quote all of these doctors many, many times. You use their own words to illustrate the damage they were doing. Uh, you quote people like Jay Bhattacharya, Monica Gandhi, John Mandrola, Marty Macquarie, Scott Atlas, Vinay Prashad, Zubin Damania, alongside Ioannidis. Is there some kind of hierarchy here? We've talked about sort of different categories of, of uh, doctors or, or experts who were spreading misinformation. Is there a kind of hierarchy in your mind regarding who had the biggest negative impact? I, I think all of those doctors had very negative impacts in different places. So I, I, again, I think Dr. Ioannidis and, and even Jay Bhattacharya, uh, he also wrote an essay at the beginning of the pandemic called, Is the Coronavirus as Deadly as They Say? And of course he said no. He also kind of predicted that it would cause about twenty to 40,000 deaths. Um, I, I think those guys directly influenced Scott Atlas. They're all at Stanford. And Scott Atlas brought uh, all of this to the Trump administration. And, you know, one thing that I want to get across very clearly is the title of the book is meant to be taken literally. We want them infected. I mean, that was a quote from uh, a, a guy by the name, an epidemiologist in the Trump administration, Dr. Paul Alexander, uh, who said, we want them infected. We want kids, teens, young adults to get infected with this virus. The plan was to spread the virus, to get rid of the virus by spreading the virus. And I think those guys, really, especially Scott Atlas, really made it policy. I think a lot of the other people that you named, Monica Gandhi, Z-Dog, Vinay Prasad, John Mandrola, they really were active on social media and in the mainstream press, uh, interviewed by The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal. So I really think that they took the message directly to the people that the virus was going away and it was nothing to worry about. And what's interesting is they didn't all start there. If you look at some of their very early pandemic pronouncements, they were you know, taking it seriously as they should. It's only when I think the phenomenon of audience capture and that things got politicized, you know, where wearing a mask was seen you were some sort of left lefty liberal, uh, that they that they began to rebel against those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I think of uh, Zubin Damania, who you just called out by his uh, his uh, stage name of Z Dog, and uh, Vinay Prasad. Like they did a whole series of YouTube videos where they were discussing all things pandemic related. And a lot of it seemed really reasonable. They really presented themselves as knowledgeable professionals who had reasonable opinions and were both opposed to COVID denialism, but also opposed to what they might have framed as a kind of hysterical fear mongering. And, and one of the 
phrases that we heard thrown around a lot in, in overlapping circles was during the pandemic, especially in the early days, was that fear is the real virus. So what's your sense of, of Prasad and, and Demania? Fear is the real virus. How, how this was positioned on these social media platforms in a way where I think for a lot of people, they may have seemed to have been you know, not as problematic as they turned out to be. Yeah, so I, this is one of the main themes of the book is that the people that you guys talk about, you know, Kelly Brogan and Sayer G, who were talking about fear as the virus at the start of the pandemic, that their ideas won, you know, that, that these crazy quack fringe doctors, their ideas won the pandemic, at least for a segment of it, at least for young people. I mean, vaccination rates are extraordinarily low. And yeah, people like Vinay Prasad and Z-Dog started to echo the words of Kelly Brogan, which is which is shocking, that fear can do more harm than the virus, that anyone who tries to avoid it is living in fear, and they just became these sort of mockable, uh, you know, they, they, that anyone who was trying to avoid the virus became a target of, of mockery and, and shame. And I don't like living in fear, but fear is necessary. We are all alive today because our ancestors lived, lived you know, in fear of enough stuff to make it to reproductive age and yes. you know great graveyards are full of young fearless people but i will say this that they spoke about measures to contain the virus uh, in extraordinarily feel for ter- fearful terms any anything that any organization or institution did to control the virus was described as draconian and just heavy-handed and that it was going to cause societal collapse. You know, they spoke about lockdowns as, uh, you know, just these catastrophes that would linger for generations. And, I, you know, I do want to say, of course, the cat lockdowns did have harms. And, you know, I want to speak from a position of privilege. Uh, I, I was never lonely. I was in the hospital all the time. I never missed a paycheck. I don't own a small business. So I, I want to recognize that I was uh, spared for the most part the, the the harms of lockdowns. And yeah, they couldn't have gone on forever. We couldn't have shuttered everything forever. But they were just described in these catastrophic terms while the virus was described as dangerous for grandma, but no one else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you have these figures who have expertise in one area, and then fall in love with the idea that they can also be experts on uh, public health policy, on uh, politics, on what counts as draconian authoritarianism, on what the cultural and psychological impacts are going to be on people's lives and on children. And you have Vinay Prasad. I actually hadn't seen this until I read it in your book. So thank you. This is a tweet from Prasad. He says, I want to write a children's book about a bear who didn't want to leave home until it was perfectly safe. He never left, and life passed him by. In the sequel, he stands at the window shouting at anyone outside that they're killing fellow bears and spreading disinformation. That's extraordinary. Right, and what's even more extraordinary is when you realize when he wrote that tweet, which was January 2021, which was the middle of the worst wave of the pandemic. 3,000 people were dying every day. Um, and you know, he just mocked people who, who, who tried to avoid the virus. He, at that same time, described vaccines as a perfect panacea that completely eliminated bad disease and completely stopped transmission. So he thought 
the you know as many people did myself a little bit included a little bit wishful thinking that that, mm-hmm. that the pandemic was, was was on the way out um and and i think that allowed him to just sort of take this mocking tone which which is constant in all of these doctors pronouncements that that if you tried to avoid the virus there was something wrong with you there was something shameful and they treated it as from the first day as a well-known entity that's something that was was as familiar to us as measles uh, and, and variants were nothing to worry about Wow, that is such a fascinating distinction that part of the reason for his mocking tone was that he believed the vaccine had now solved. Now that we had the vaccine, it had solved the pandemic and there was no reason to be afraid or to or to self-quarantine and that anyone who was doing anything like that was just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, in his defense, I mean, the vaccine trials when they first came out showed 95% efficacy against infection and near perfect perfection against severe disease. But they were new vaccines. We'd never used this sort of technology before. This was a new virus. We don't know that we didn't know that it was done mutating, and we still don't. Um, but they really treated it as this very, very predictable entity, even from the moment that it first arrived on our shore. So uh, Dr. Ioannidis talked about uh, in an article from March 2020 in Stat News about how closing schools might prevent children from contracting the disease and developing herd immunity as if we knew that one infection would lead to permanent immunity, which of course we didn't know. That was always an article of faith and it turned out to be wrong, unfortunately. So yeah, let's just deal with that really quickly here. The Great Barrington Declaration essentially said, and it, and it was signed on to, it was started, I believe, by Jay Bhattacharya. It was signed on to by, I don't know how many doctors, who many of whom were, were very highly pedigreed. Um, it said that the pandemic would be over in three months if we just allowed herd immunity to develop. And if we accepted the fact that there was going to be a certain amount of the population who were more vulnerable than others, who would sort of inevitably had to be sacrificed, this is how I interpreted it. That's probably putting a, a little bit of, a, of a, a sharp spin on it. And there are, there are people like Barry Weiss who will go on Bill Maher's show and say, you know, this, the, the, it turned out to be true. Jay Bhattacharya should never have been uh, shadow banned on Twitter. Uh, because he was actually right. And if we had listened to him, the pandemic would have been over in you know a much shorter period of time. What are the facts? And, and also, the, it's often then pointed to, uh, Sweden is often pointed to as the country that followed the herd immunity strategy. And look, it, it worked out great for them. Yeah, so the Great Barrington Declaration was uh, published on October 4th, 2020, and it was signed by, initially written by three doctors, Jay Bhattacharya One uh, from Stanford, Martin Kuldorf, who at the time was with, at Harvard, and Sunita Gupta, who is uh, an epidemiologist at, at Oxford. And it was an unusual thing. Uh, it was signed in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which is where it got its name from. There were journalists there, there were cameras there, and that usually doesn't happen when doctors get together to talk shop. I, I've never been filmed and had journalists there. So it was a very choreographed thing uh, run by a man by the name of Mr. Jeffrey Tucker, who was sort of an anarcho-capitalist type who has some problematic views. Uh, before the pandemic, he wrote for... Uh, 
an organization called Sons of the Confederacy or something like that, you know, which had white supremacist ties. He wrote an article, uh, I think in 2016, called Let the Kids Work, which, as the name implies, was an overtly pro-child labor article uh, saying that children should get out of the classroom and into the factories. And he also wrote an article that children should smoke when they are young because it's cool and they can give it up before it does too much damage. So this guy who wants my children to drop out of high school and smoke with their friends during their break from their shift at Walmart really influenced our pandemic response. And the Great Barrington Declaration itself is very short. It probably took about an hour or two to write. You can read it in five minutes. And it was based on this idea that people could be easily dichotomized into vulnerable and not vulnerable. I mean, clearly they're right about the fact that an 80-year-old with hypertension and diabetes is going to be very vulnerable to COVID and a healthy 10-year-old is not going to be, although some healthy 10-year-olds have died. Um, but they, they didn't recognize that there was a, a gradient. They talked about vulnerable and not vulnerable people. And they only talked about death as a bad outcome. So either you survived COVID and were totally fine or it killed you. And their idea was that not vulnerable people could be completely walled off from vulnerable people. So they wanted to have uh, zero COVID for vulnerable people and pure COVID for everyone else. Um, and if only uh, that was to happen and young, healthy people contracted COVID and if one infection led to permanent immunity, then uh vulnerable people who'd been subjected to a stringent six month, three to six months home improve, uh, uh, home imprisonment um, could emerge unscathed. And the whole pandemic would sort of be a blip on the history books. Very few lives would be lost. We could open everything back up uh, and uh, the virus would be gone. So get rid of the virus by spreading the virus, which was Kelly Brogan's idea about how to treat HPV, that the best way to get immunity to HPV is to get HPV. So that's what I mean when I say her ideas won the pandemic. And they turned into cheerleaders for the virus. So Martin Kuldorf's uh, uh, wrote about young people having an obligation to contract the virus the same way our grandfathers fought in World War II. Um, they wrote articles called The Triumph of Natural Immunity, and Jay Bhattacharya celebrated you know, people getting COVID. Notably, he postponed his date with the virus until after he'd been vaccinated twice. So I think a lot of these people um, wanted the herd to be available for them. There's not much evidence that people actually wanted to join the herd. <laughs> and um, you know, their plan to protect the vulnerable, it really wasn't a plan. Again, you can read the Great Barrington Declaration in, in, in five minutes. It was just a list of demands for public health workers. And it was, you know, feed old people at home, uh, give them all hotel rooms if they need a place to stay you know and there's a big difference between writing words feed people at home and actually feeding tens of millions of vulnerable people at home during the raging pandemic but they made these very difficult probably impossible things sound very easy and that was of great benefit to them because it allowed them to say, no one is listening to us. We told them exactly what to do and no one is listening to us. So I sort of liken them to a football coach who tells his team, score more points than the other guys. It's, it's not the wrong plan, right? If we could just protect the vulnerable, great, but it's not a good plan. And a football coach who's 
tells his team only, you know, score more points than the other guys, you know, his team isn't going to win. Yeah, but you, but you can't deny that if you score more points than the other guys, you will win. <laughs> Yes. So the lo- the logic is really strong. Yeah. So I just want to acknowledge I sort of miss I misremembered how vulnerable people were positioned within that sort of great Barrington declaration. And and yeah, the uh, the theatrical sort of grandiosity that you're describing is is really quite something. Right. And then then, then you asked about Sweden. So I mean, I think yeah. Sweden's pandemic response can really div- be divided into pre-vaccine and, and, and post-vaccine. And, and post-vaccine, they did very well. Actually, they they, they vaccinated a very large swaths of their population. Uh, but during the first wave, during the first year, they had many more deaths than their Nordic neighbors. There were some really horrifying reports of people not in nursing homes not being taken to hospitals, being given morphine instead of oxygen. Uh, you know, to basically kill them. Um, and the myth there is that Sweden never locked down. And if you listen to people who live in Sweden, I, I've, I've talked to a few, uh, you know, at, at various points, they had to limit gatherings to eight people. They closed uh, a lot of uh, parks and, and, and zoos and a lot of things were, were, were closed uh, for very long periods of time. They closed high schools at some point. And even in elementary schools, which were never officially closed throughout the whole country, there were times, just like here in red states and Texas and Georgia, where the virus just completely shut down schools and students had remote learning for months at a time, even though schools were officially open. And of course, vulnerable people in Sweden were subjected to a very strict lockdown of sorts. Um, And that's what the Great Barrington Declaration wanted to do. They didn't do any polling to ask vulnerable people whether they were okay with every single visit to the grocery store being a life or death experience. They just wanted to impose their will on everyone else uh, and call it freedom. And there's interesting uh, political underpinnings there. Uh, I think I'm remembering that Jay Bhattacharya had uh, been very involved with groups like the Heritage Foundation. There's a, there's a kind of, um, there's a think tank orientation towards libertarian economic policies that tries to find ways to shoehorn science into supporting whatever is going to basically be good for for big business and, and libertarian impulses. Yeah, I mean, they all treated the pandemic like it was a game, like it was a thought experiment, like it was a puzzle to be solved for which there were no consequences on the real world. And this is what I try to do throughout the book, is bring in real stories of people who read his article, The Ill-Advised Push to Vaccinate the Young. And I don't know, I don't know that anyone directly refused the vaccine because of that specific article, but absorbed the message uh, that children didn't need the vaccines or young people didn't need the vaccines or it was just the flu. And the tragic consequences of people who realize too late that it's not just the flu. And the flu can be really bad, too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So speaking of theatrics, on June 15th of 2021, you write about how San Mateo County celebrated Dr. Monica Gandhi Day, in which uh, she cut a ceremonial ribbon made of COVID masks and declared California reopened thanks to the work of, of they they positioned her in their publicity about this as their great infectious disease expert. Yeah, so Monica Gandhi is an infectious disease expert at UCSF, uh, University of California, San Francisco, who was many one of many doctors who started in, in 2021, um, essentially declaring the pandemic over. And 
every month starting, actually starting at the beginning of the pandemic, but it really picked up starting uh, in 2021 when we started vaccinating people, uh, the idea that the pandemic was over. So articles started being published called, we'll have herd immunity by April, that's Marty McCary, uh, or the COVID threat is over, now is the time to stop living in fear. In February 22nd, 2021, she and Dr. Uh, Demania, aka Z-Dog, made a video called The End of the Pandemic, and which they laughed and they laughed about variants, schmerians. And as new variants arrived, as the Delta variant arrived, they said, you know, the data on the Delta variant is reassuring. When Omicron arrived, you know, Marty McCary called it Omicold and nature's vaccine. And over and over and over again, the pandemic was declared over. And I think that this had a lot of real world consequences. I think people live their life as if the pandemic was over. And you got to watch the video because they just thought it was so funny. And one thing that I love about what you guys do on this show is you don't talk about just what people say, but you talk about the presentation, how it's all part of a package, you know, um, the resting guru face, for example. And, you know, you talk about how people like Charles Eisenstein and, you know, can, can really almost put people in a trance that they could probably just be reading from, uh, you know, from random pages from the dictionary and sort of make it sound profound. And, and, and that really opened me up to, to try to look for that in what these doctors do, uh, like Vinay Prasad and, and Z-Dog. And I think that they do it just by mockery, just by, oh my gosh, if you're worried about COVID and kids, you're fear-mongering. What are you going to do? Never let them leave the house? You're just a ridiculous sort of, uh, sort of person. Um, and an interesting thing is that the fact that we were okay at protecting young people at the start of the pandemic was used as evidence that they didn't need protection in the first place. So they would say things like, uh, more young people died of suicide than COVID. Okay, true. That's true. But one of the reasons that's the case is because we didn't let COVID run rampant in the pediatric population, uh, as you suggested that we do. So you're only able to say that more children died of suicide than COVID because uh, we didn't let mass children die of COVID. And we don't have to pick between those two things. We can try to stop suicide and COVID. Anyways, drives me crazy. Yeah. And I often <laughs> think of that as uh, an example or, or a, a similar dynamic goes on with how the success of vaccines yeah. kind of mean that for a lot of people, they say, well, I mean, I don't know anyone who's ever gotten any of those diseases. So why do we need to be vaccinating kids against them? It's like, it's because of the vaccines that you don't know anyone who's ever suffered any of these actually really debilitating diseases. And in fact, if you just visited some less privileged countries where they don't have the infrastructure to do the kind of vaccination we do here, you, you'd see some pretty shocking things. As we started to, to, to see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, with vaccines becoming widely available, we've already discussed a little bit how these anti-vax adjacent uh, libertarian contrarians were really coming to the fore. And, and the most egregious kind of iteration of this was the insistence on comparing vaccine mandates and quarantine measures to Nazi policies. Um, what was your sense of how this really impacted our broader recovery from the pandemic, as well as 
let's not forget the lives of public health officials and, and medical professionals. Yeah, so th this sort of thing has gone on for as long as vaccines have been around. Obviously, uh, comparisons to Nazis only began after uh, <laughs> Nazis came around. But, uh, you know, you can look at back at old anti-vaccine cartoons from 1900 uh, and, and see, uh, you know, poor drawings of, you know, poor souls being gathered by the police and injected by doctors. So, so this sort of... Uh, propaganda is really very old. Um, and before the pandemic, anti-vaxxers would wear yellow stars to uh, claim solidarity with persecuted Jews. Uh, you know, really, really d d disgusting stuff. And this continued uh, throughout the pandemic. You guys have discussed RFK Jr. and his statements that, uh, uh, you know, Anne Frank had it better because at least she could hide from the Nazis. Um, and Kelly Brogan said the same thing, that this was all some sort of forced agenda to, to vaccinate us all, the, the sort of dehumanization that, that preceded the, the Holocaust. And most of the doctors that, that I discuss uh, didn't go quite that far, uh, although Vinay Prasad wrote an article in which he's fantasized that healthcare workers, that, that a future Hitler could use public health measures in a future pandemic to, to seize control, to really, uh, you know, to, be, to become a, an authoritarian. And this is just, uh, you know, oppression fantasy. Uh, when you look at the people who are carrying Nazi flags during this pandemic, they were not people who were trying to vaccinate people. They were trying people who were trying to resist uh, vaccination. And most of us think that it's heroic to stand up to Nazis. I would certainly not argue that. And so a lot of people thought they were being heroes when they stood up to public health workers and, and vaccine clinics, even voluntary vaccine clinics. Uh, and public health workers were threatened. They were abused. They were attacked. Many left their jobs. So when I uh, read accounts of Jay Bhattacharya uh, being silenced because YouTube took down one of his videos, uh, you know, he... I don't think, I hope not, wasn't threatened and attacked. Um, you know, he was just very strongly criticized. Uh, but, it, but it all had consequences on the ground. And I do think that we are less prepared now than we were three years ago for a pandemic because if another virus hits, there's going to be uh, extraordinarily backlash to anyone who takes any measures to control it. Let's try to put to rest some of the false claims about the COVID vaccines. Uh, these include... They were developed too quickly. Uh, there were really dangerous side effects that were covered up. They were much less effective than claimed. They didn't actually stop the spread. They aren't really vaccines. They're a, a new and untested form of gene therapy. What, what might you address here? Boy, there's a lot. I mean, so the vaccines were developed very quickly. I, I, I think uh, there's many reasons why. First of all, we weren't starting off from a zero point. There had been a lot of work on mRNA vaccines before the pandemic. So they weren't exactly developed from scratch. That's point one. Point two is no expense was spared for Operation Warp Speed. I mean, everyone agrees pretty much that that was a, a great success and a great uh, way to spend money. Uh, usually for medical trials, funding is hard to come by. 
So that's point two. Point three is people beat down the door to volunteer to be in these studies. I was in one. I volunteered to be uh, in the AstraZeneca study. So it, it can often take a long time to recruit volunteers to be in vaccine trials. That wasn't a problem in these. And then the fourth thing is just that COVID spread so quickly. So the way the vaccine trials were designed is they said, we're going to wait until 150 to 200 people get COVID. Then we're going to look at the results. So let's say you were doing this for a more slowly spreading virus like HIV, you'd have to wait a decade before you got 150 cases. It depends how big your study is, but you, you know HIV doesn't doesn't spread wildly and, and, and out of control. Uh, so with COVID spreading wildly and out of control, uh, it wasn't didn't take long at all before uh, we accumulated 150 cases. So these vaccine trials went quickly for those reasons. In terms of their efficacy, yeah, they're not as good as, as during the initial trials. It's not like those initial trials were wrong. I don't think data was faked. Uh, but the virus has changed, and unfortunately, immunity for these virus uh, for these vaccines and for this virus just isn't super long lasting. And that's only something that we were going to have determined just by waiting. Yeah. Uh, but with, with with all these variants, um, and then the third thing is side effects. Uh, you know, this is something that I predicted uh, in my very first article on science based medicine, where I've done most of my writing uh, on, on May tenth, twenty twenty one. I correctly wrote that once millions of teens and are, are vaccinated, uh, something bad is going to happen to some of them because that's how it's always been with vaccines. Uh, you know, with the HPV vaccine, uh, you know, millions of girls were vaccinated and, you know, tragically some died within the next week of, of, of whatever. Um, and that happened with the pediatric vaccine as well. And these sort of rare tragedies and, and were, were, of course, blamed on the vaccine because once you've gotten a vaccine, Everything will forever be blamed on the vaccine. And what are the harms of the vaccine? Well, uh, the biggest harms are with the vaccine that uh, not so many people got, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that can cause blood clots and, and did lead to a few deaths uh, in, in some people. Uh, the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, this is what all children got. The main side effect that that can cause is myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. Um, it seems to be rare. You, the, the exact frequency of vaccine myocarditis varies from one study to, to the next, but uh, a reasonable sort of estimate is that it's about 1 in 10,000 adolescent boys after their second shot. Um, and if you do the math and look at how many people were vaccinated, that probably affected about a thousand children in the United States. So, um, and then if you look at the prognosis of that, every study, every single one, there's over 20 uniformly described it as having a favorable prognosis in the short term that in, in, in the most recent series, uh, uh, from Canada, uh, almost all children were sent home from the ER, and those who were admitted really just stayed one night. So, you know, a handful of children have become more sick. I don't want to, to minimize it, uh, but it's not as bad as death from COVID. And the doctors who I write about uh, literally treated this rare, mild vaccine side effect as a fate worse than death from COVID. So, for example, uh, Dr. John Mandrola, who, who, whose name you mentioned, he wrote for, for uh, he, he's a prominent doctor on social media, writes for online medical journals like Medscape, uh, wrote an article called No Young Adults Should Not Live in Fear of COVID. And he said fear of death is not a reason for young adults to try to avoid COVID because it's so rare. 
Um, and then when he talked about vaccine myocarditis, he said vaccine myocarditis demands respect. So this transient mild side effect was treated as a fate worse than death. And Vinay Prasad did this as well. He made 25 videos on vaccine myocarditis, um, you know, one for every 20 patients affected by the, the, the disease. But when talking about death from COVID, he talked about it as vanishingly rare. He mocked everyone who talked about it. He said they, they were breathless. That's how he always described anyone who even just presented basic facts on pediatric COVID. Uh, they were just hysterical fear mongers. But vaccine myocarditis, that's worse than death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So fear is the real virus, except fear of a rare side effect for which the prognosis is really, really good that actually occurs uh, more frequently and is more severe in people who are unvaccinated as a result of COVID. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so this was, this was a, a lot of pandemic discourses, you know, which causes my, more myocarditis, the virus or the vaccine. But that's not even really the right question because, uh, COVID can do much more than cause myocarditis. Yeah. It can kill. It can cause this, uh, this entity MIS, multi-system inflammatory disorder in children, which is a, a very severe uh, post-viral autoimmune type condition, which has affected over 10,000 children, killed about 75 of them. 80% of children with this condition go to the ICU. There have been cases of hem- hemodynamic collapse due to this condition, uh, but that is treated as, uh, as more... Uh, as rarer and more milder than vaccine myocarditis when it's neither. You know, one of the recurrent themes we cover on the podcast is how far-right conspiracy theories will exploit the vulnerability of children to really stir up hysteria and to inspire extremism. And this you know, goes all the way back to the medieval blood libel, and that carries through to the satanic panic, which is more recent, and then up to QAnon in the last few years, anti-vax, and then even like the, the CRT, critical race theory, moral panics, and the, 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 the drag queen story hour, you know, people are actually grooming your kids so that they can mutilate them. It's just awful stuff. We've been talking about how children became tragic pawns during the pandemic for this kind of rhetoric. Uh, What else can you tell us about that with regard to kids and COVID and vaccination? Yeah, so first of all, you know, I don't want to be accused of fear mongering. So I'll say this, that the vast, you know, the only good thing that you can say about COVID is is really the vast majority of children uh, will be fine with it. And, I, I, you know, all the kids in my life had COVID and, and I was not particularly worried about them, even the younger ones who had it before they were vaccinated. Having said that, rare things multiplied by 73 million American children add up and COVID's overall impact was not benign for children. Uh, It was definitely comparable to many other vaccine-preventable diseases. So uh, although these numbers are not exact, they're sources that they can be underestimated and overestimated, but around 2,000 children have died of COVID. Just under 200,000 children have been hospitalized, and about a third of those go to the ICU, and maybe 5 to, to 10% of them get intubated. As I said, there have been about 10,000 cases of this condition, multi-system inflammatory disorder. And a lot of children, I think there's more questions than answers about it at this point, but our long COVID in children is real. And we're going to be learning about re- the consequences of repeat infections the rest of our lives. You know, if the child is born today, uh, how many times are they going to be infected by the time they're 20? And what are going to be the consequences of those repeat infections, especially for unvaccinated children? Uh, so the fact that 
COVID-impacted elderly people more was used as a reason to leave young children vulnerable, uh, which is, of course, nonsensical, right? Uh, The idea that just because grandma is in more danger, we shouldn't protect kids uh, is is kind of silly. The fact that it wasn't the number one leading cause of of death in children, that guns and, and, and car crashes killed more children was another reason used to leave children vulnerable to COVID. Uh, and the fact that most children who suffered from uh, COVID had underlying conditions, not all, uh, but most did. And these were very common underlying conditions like obesity and asthma, uh, not just you know, children with end-stage cancer, um, w- was also used as, as reasons to leave children vulnerable to COVID. And all of the numbers that I just presented would have been much worse had we made no effort to, pr- to, to protect children. So had we let the virus spread through the pediatric population at the pandemic start, as all of these doctors feel we should have done, I don't know exactly what would have happened, but I feel comfortable saying hospitals would not have been able to handle the volume. They already were overwhelmed during the Omicron wave. So I think thousands more children would have died. Hundreds of thousands of more children would have been hospitalized. And some of them would be very sick. Some children have had strokes or needed amputations uh, or needed lung transplants. Again, these are not common things, but given that a vaccine can almost wipe those tragedies down to zero, um, it's astonishing that doctors would parrot Kelly Brogan and say, let's just leave kids vulnerable. That kind of Reasoning always seems to me to be based on the idea that they they seem to be based on an over-exaggerated estimation of the danger of side effects and and underestimation of the dangers of actually getting sick. And so there's the sense of it's it's almost like there's there's some kind of fallacy at play that says doing nothing is more kind of morally defensible than taking action that actually scientifically we know has a much better outcome. And and you said before that your sense is that we're less prepared now for another pandemic than perhaps we were before this last one. We find ourselves in a very interesting position here with um, the two challengers that are uh, going up against Biden so far for the Democratic uh, nomination for president are Marianne Williamson, who I wouldn't say she's a straight up anti-vaxxer, but she's expressed plenty of standard. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I have these concerns. I have these questions. I have these demands, you know, for testing that have already been met. A lot of misinformation uh, has come out of her mouth about about vaccines. And then Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the other one who's actually, you know, polling pretty close to Biden at the moment, which may not mean anything. But uh, nonetheless, he's he's made a career of being uh, very prolific anti-vaxxer. I really shuddered uh, a little while ago at the implications of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis appointing this Public Health Integrity Committee uh, in December of last year. And he put Brett Weinstein on there, who's, you know, ivermectin proponent and and vaccine alarmist. And uh, Jay Bhattacharya, I believe, is on that committee. What is your sense of of these developments and and what it means? Yeah, I mean it's terrifying. I mean that 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 I think the the anti vaccine movement has now gone mainstream. Uh, you know, I think Joseph Ladapo, the Surgeon General of Florida, uh, was recently caught basically faking data. I, I think a scandal. Uh, almost as bad, if not as bad, as Andrew Wakefield. And, you know, we just kind of shrug it off at this point. And, 
you know, a lot of the worlds that we're talking about are overlapping. So, you know, we've talked, you know, uh, so far uh, as if, you know, the guys that you discuss and the guys that I discuss are separate, but, but they're beginning to merge. So RFK Jr. Uh, has featured some writing by uh, Vinay Prasad, and so has the National Vaccine Information Center, the NVIC, which is the oldest anti-vaccine group here in America. And Vinay Prasad recently listened to a podcast of RFK Jr. and praised him and said, uh, you know, he's on, you know, he's not on the right track about vaccines causing autism, but, you know, he's on the right track about, uh, you know, or he should have focused more on the harms of the COVID vaccine. So, so these worlds are beginning to sort of merge uh, and, and overlap. Uh, in, in a very scary way. And there's no question that this is going to bleed into distrust for routine childhood vaccines as well. Uh, you know, Vinay Prasad even spoke uh, positively about infecting children with chickenpox or uh, the, the benefits of contracting the flu. Do we really know that it's really desirable to prevent every, you know, pre- pre- prevent the flu infection in children? Maybe that will lead to cancer later on. And this was the sort of stuff that before the pandemic was the the, the unique uh, purview of people like RFK Jr., Sherry Tenpenny, Suzanne Humphreys, uh, Kelly Brogan, you know, all the, all the anti-vaccine quacks. So, so our worlds are overlapping. Yeah. And with, uh, with Prasad praising RFK, he's actually in, in the company of Alex Jones and Charlie Kirk. Um, there's a whole list of them, uh, Roger Stone, uh, um, Steve Bannon, who've all, you know, when, when Kennedy announced that he was running all said, well, he's, he's the real deal. You know, he's a man of great integrity. And in fact, a couple of them have said, uh, the, the Trump RFK junior ticket would really be a dream come true. God, my, my nightmare is that it's Trump versus Kennedy and I have to pick one to vote for. Oh my Mm. goodness gracious. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know who I'd pick, but it'd be a, you know, Oh God. Okay. So last question, uh, you know, your, your book, I think represents a very sobering clarion call about what we can learn from all of this and, and how we, we can potentially move forward armed with an understanding of, of what went wrong. What's your sense of, of how we can create positive change in the world uh, moving forward around the, these topics? So, so it's tough. Um, I, I certainly don't have uh, all the answers. And, uh, you know, there are certain movements which seem to have kind of hit a roadblock to have more sort of formal sanctions for doctors who spread misinformation uh, that state licensing boards should should take a, a harder uh, uh tact on, on these doctors. I'm always a little bit, uh, you know, wary of these sorts of solutions because I do not want Ron DeSantis to win presidency and have Joseph Ladapo become our surgeon general and have him sort of say what doctors can and can't say. So I'm sympathetic to that view. But I think the main thing that we have to do, uh, is, is what you and what your podcast has done such a wonderful job of, which is to really sort of, uh, shine sunlight uh, on, on, on some of these bad actors. And there's a tradition in medicine of academic freedom, which is good and important. And we need to be open to uh, heterodox voices just because someone is saying something outside the mainstream doesn't mean that they're wrong, but it has led to a tolerance of misinformation that most of my fellow doctors just kind of shrug. And my interest in the anti-vaccine movement and 
before the pandemic was seen as just this sort of weird quirk, like as if I like collecting stamps, you know, just like this, this, this sort of weird hobby. Like what's, what's the matter with you that you find this worthy of your attention? Right, exactly. Yeah. A, a little bit. And, and the doctors who, who spoke out about this before, people like David Gorsky and Steve Novella, the founders of science-based medicine, um, you know, they weren't rewarded for it. They weren't promoted. They weren't given academic accolades. Not that that's what motivates me, but in response for, for their hard work, they were just uh, threatened uh, and, and, and given, you know, threatened to be sued and, and, and harassed and this sort of thing. And the medical community, I think, really didn't have their back. And even now, you know, who's speaking out? It's kind of just random doctors like myself, but, uh, you know, department chairmen, I, I think, have been extremely timid and deans of medical school. They're, they're so afraid of, of appearing as censors that they have censored themselves. All of the people that we are talking about, uh, and you described this very well and have, have, have devoted whole shows to this, the, wep is a, the weaponization of perceived victimhood, that if you contradict me at all, you are trying to silence and censor me, and therefore, you know, you're as bad as Hitler. Uh, and no one wants to be seen as a, a, a censor. Um, and I think that people in positions of authority have been so afraid of that accusation that the only people they've silenced have been themselves. And we don't need to threaten Jay Bhattacharya's career or Vinay Prasad's medical license. We just need to not tolerate it. And, and when he says things that are ridiculous, like polio is more dangerous for children than COVID, even though polio hasn't infected a child in America in 40 years, we need to say that's ridiculous. We don't need to say that's thinking differently. But a lot of doctors do that. They just say, oh, he's just thinking differently. This is just heterodox. It's a different opinion. Uh, when in fact, uh, the disease that killed 2,000 children is worse than the one which killed zero. And that wouldn't have been controversial in 2019. Yeah, it seems to me what's missing from this uh, fetishizing and posturing about, around being heterodox is that coherent heterodoxy has to rely on rigor. It has to rely on, okay, we are going to look at both sides of this argument and then we're going to consider what the evidence actually shows. Because if the two sides of the argument are contradicting one another, they can't both be right unless this is a very, very complex, nuanced situation where, you know, you could find a way to, to square that. So often I see that heterodox debate as as elevating pseudoscience and logical fallacies and conspiracy theories to being on a, a level playing field with uh, points of view about reality that are just much more reasonable. And, and let me tell you about one heterodox voice who was right this pandemic. It's probably someone who you uh, haven't heard of. She didn't become a household name because she doesn't care for attention. And I hope I'm going to say her name right. She's this Hungarian mRNA scientist, Karina Kariko. Uh, I probably butchered her name, but, but she's a basic scientist who studied mRNA for decades. And I only know what I read about her in the New York Times, but you know, she was sort of thought of as this kind of quirky woman doing her own thing and just like in some corner of a lab. She never really got her own funding. She never really got her own support. But she did groundbreaking work in mRNA that paved the way for these vaccines. So yeah, it's definitely important that we don't silence heterodox voices. But you're exactly right. They have to bring the evidence. You know, I think a lot of these doctors doctors uh, just contradicted whatever the mainstream would be and called themselves heterodox. So I think, for example, that if all vaccines were banned, 
Kelly Brogan, Christian, Northrup, etc., would say correctly, these are a suppressed miracle cure. They are they are hiding them because you know doctors make more money treating uh, illness th- th- than preventing uh-huh. it. And I think that's true about the doctors who I write about in, in my book as well. That that if pediatric COVID vaccines were banned, they would say, are you crazy? You know, 2,000 children, you know, you're just going to let 2,000 children die. You're going to let hundreds of thousands of children be hospitalized. For what reason? They would be right in that situation. But I get the sense that they were just being heterodox for the sake of being heterodox and opposite for the sake of being opposite. Whereas this woman, Karina Kareko, again, whose name I'm butchering, but probably most people haven't heard of because she doesn't have a YouTube. She doesn't have a Substack. You know, she avoids interviews. She avoids the limelight, which is in direct, you know, could you imagine Kelly Brogan turning down an interview or Vinay Prasad turning down an interview? That'd be like my dog turning down, you know, treats. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So people like her are not relying on the algorithmic boost of contrarianism for the sake of contrarianism, continuing to generate uh, revenue and fame and whatever the other incentives might be. This has been really illuminating. Dr. Howard, thank you so much. Where can people read more of your writing and where can they buy the book? So, um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And and like I said, I've learned so much through your podcast because you have taken on characters that I have been familiar with for for many years. And I have focused on just the facts that they got wrong, just the, the, the science they got wrong. But you have really, all three of you guys have really sort of shown me just all, all these Uh, you know, interweaving threads and connections that I never would have considered. So thank you uh, for for that. That's very kind. You can find me on Twitter uh, at 19joho. And I I write uh, two to three articles per month at Science Based Medicine. Um, The book can be found on Amazon or Red Hawk Publishing. And I will just say this, that my publishers were wonderful. They really cared about the book and they got it out in a timely fashion. I couldn't have been happier, uh, but they're small. Uh, they have no marketing division and I have no marketing division. I have no agent. I'm just like one dude <laughs> with an apartment here in New York City. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so the book has to spread by word of mouth. So uh, if you read it and uh, you can tolerate it, uh, it's meant to be a hard read. It's meant to be very difficult uh, to read. And that's a lot of the feedback that I'm getting. But uh, you know, I appreciate you just uh, letting, your, letting your friends know. And thanks for having me on. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Conspirituality Podcast. We will see you back here on the main feed or on Patreon. Patreon.